Welcome to Autumnus, a podcast about spiritual listening and synodality in the Catholic Church. My name is Lexi de la Ferriere, and I'll be your host today. Elotruku Izuku is a spiritan priest and professor of theology at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. He specializes in liturgy, ecclesiology, and African contextual theology. He is the editor of the Bulletin of Ecumenical Theology and author of numerous articles and books, including God, Spirit, and Human Wholeness, Appropriating Faith and Culture in West African Style, and also A Listening Church, Autonomy and Communion in African Churches. His current work is focused on reconsidering the image of the church's family of God in the light of West African experiences. Father Zuku, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much, Alexis, uh, for welcoming me to this uh, conversation. So, Father Zuku, there's a lot within your work that that I'd like to parse through a bit today. But I thought, since the the podcast really focuses on this idea of a listening church, mm-hmm. um, I thought we could we could start right with Pope Francis's words, yes. where he's described the current synod on synodality as mm-hmm. offering us the opportunity to become a listening church and to break out of our routine and to pause from our pastoral concerns in order to stop and listen. Yes. Father Zuku, from your experience, what does it mean to be a listening church? Well, today, um, I will be unable to to add anything to what the Pope has already said. Who am I to add anything more? The important point that Pope Francis made, which I really took to heart, and which in 1994, when I was writing A Listening Church that was published in 1996, was the whole area of the community of believers listening to the Holy Spirit, waiting for the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to address us. This is the principal mark of the church because I do think that the church of Jesus Christ was born soaked with the Holy Spirit. And and if we dare, if we dare, to listen to one another, knowing that in the conversations we have one with another, we are actually and also having a conversation and listening thanks to the Holy Spirit. Mm. And what is the contribution of African theology that can help us to put some flesh on that idea of a listening church? In your work, you've pointed out that amongst the Manja people in Central African Republic, they have a totem for the chief that's the rabbit because the rabbit has large ears. Could you tell us about that totem and how it's relevant for the church? I know uh, when I was in the Congo, uh, I had a lot of uh, Central Africans, you know, and uh, I visited the Central African Republic uh, when there was still uh, a good dialogue going on there. And as a spirit and priest, my former uh, Superior General, the late Pierre Chouvet. He lived in Central African Republic for a long time. And when he read the scripts of my, of um, the manuscript of my uh, book, and I was 
uh, talking about what would be the architecture of a local church, we started talking about the manja of Central African Republic. And it was actually from him that I learned about the rabbit and the large ears. You know, so uh, the idea of the rabbit uh, with the large ears is to, it's also like what the Igbo people say, like you drop your ear to the ground and you hear this, the, the conversation of the ant, you, you hear the cry of the ant. So like when you do not use violence, 1994 was a terrible, terrible year. And that was the during the Rwanda massacres. When you do not approach life and you choose conversation rather than violence, then you, you appreciate this kind of animal, you know, likes to uh, eat its vegetables, but also has the ears to know because the rabbit knows where the danger is coming quickly. And then is able to communicate, transmit it immediately, and then run into its hole. So that's that's the the, the the totem of the of the chief. That for the security, note for the security of the clan, for the security of the people, the chief, the leader, must have large ears, large listening ears, listening to everybody, not missing. The conversation from any level at all, so that's the that's the image of the rabbit and the large ears. That the, that the rabbit as totem, you know, totem meaning the symbol. This is what we embrace as the symbol of our own life, you know. And how do we make our life better? But to clarify our focus on this symbol, that's the, the symbolism of the rabbit and the. Um, large ears. So looking at uh, African contextual theology from an outsider's perspective, so it's not mm -hmm. something that I engage with very much, yeah. it seems that it's almost kind of walking a tightrope between yeah. African traditional culture, these images, these figures, and yeah. the deposit of faith and, and yeah. revelation. So how do you as a theologian interpret that those images from African tradition in light of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now uh, there are just too many uh, aspects that you can uh, you can pick the whole inter interface, the whole interface between the uh, scriptures, that is the narrative that you find in the Hebrew scriptures and the narratives that you find in the uh, Christian New Testament. And then you compare them and you see continuities and differences in the narratives that you have in the tradition. As an older man today, I regret that the narratives we have in our tradition, we have not preserved them as well as the Hebrews preserved their narratives, their stories, and as, as, as these narratives have been absorbed into Christianity. So as a theologian, uh, as a liturgist, and as someone uh, who tries to have a conversation, a conversation between myself, my culture, and my received faith, I, I integrate 
I see how the two narratives that make, make up who I am, you know, I'm not manufactured from nowhere. I come from somewhere. And the interface between the two, not just, not just the commingling, but the challenging face-to-face -face between these enable me to appreciate better, to appreciate better, actually, the impact of the message of Jesus, the impact of this message in changing our ways, in especially the impact that Jesus made on social relations. Mm -hmm. Say whatever you like. I think, I think, I believe uh, uh, today that uh, we still have a lot to learn from the sacrifice that Jesus the Christ made to change social relations. And in the church, we should not permit, allow imperialistic thinking to overtake us and make us lose those little ways in which Jesus did enable us to see the world and to recreate the world in a different way. So one of the, or perhaps two of the um, social issues that you highlight in some of your work is you talk about the need for the African church to return to community from what you say yeah. is an excess of individualism and clericalism. Yeah. You wrote yeah. this a while ago. I don't know if you think this is still relevant. Yeah. And when you write about this, you so you, you draw on the gospel, but you also draw, again, on certain African traditions. So, for example, you, you write about the Igbo goddesses Allah yeah. um, or Allah and yeah. Idemili. Um, yeah. And so I was wondering how you relate those to those figures, how you both kind of in that particular, so the problem of individualism, problem of clericalism, how do you yeah. draw concretely both on the gospel and on those figures, for example? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this will take too long a, a time to explain, but let me just try. Let me just try and see uh, whether I will, uh, because when you mention the earth goddess, Allah, or when you mention the daughter of Allah, Idemili, you bring in so much the mythology of these and in the symbolism of these two, you know, and from the perspective of reimagining our society today. I'm not just talking about church because we have lost it as well. I come from Nigeria. We have lost it in, the, in our society as well. You know, the tyrannies that we live in our society are totally far away, distant from the mythological control or rather the mythological direction of society by the earth goddess of peace and her daughter, Idemili, that spreads the water of peace around wherever all the rivers and streams flow. In one of his novels, Chino Achebe's novels, Ant Hill, Ant Hills of the Savannah, in one of his novels, uh, he was so, uh, Achebe was so frustrated about the new power blocks in Nigeria, especially the military takeover of government and the implications of these, the violence of these uh, uh, takeovers. And he suggested, a myth, the myth of Idemili. 
And uh, uh, it, in, I, I just want, want to, to, to quote one of the, the, the myths, you know, and he says that in the beginning, power capitalized. In the beginning, power rampaged through our world naked. And there's not, nothing as destructive as naked power. And you can have it in the state, you can have it in the church. People operating with impunity. Okay, power rampaged through our world naked. So, the Almighty, that is God, looking at his creation through the round undying eye of the sun, saw and pondered and finally decided to send his daughter, Idemili, to bear witness to the moral nature of authority. Not now power, but authority, the moral nature of authority by wrapping around Pa's Rude West, West, W-A-I-S-T, Rude West, a loincloth of peace and modesty. That is why anybody in the traditional society who was to be moved to a position of leadership must be initiated and must be initiated to the point that if you are not transparent, you will run the risk of losing your life. We don't have those imperatives. Uh, uh, we keep we keep them post history. If you didn't do well, you will go to hell. But the advantage of indigenous religion is you did not take care of the community the way an initiate should. You lose your life. So in that sense, idemili. And, uh, and Allah challenge leadership. It must be transparent and there must be morality, there must be peace, there must be modesty. This is not too much to ask in our church today. So there you make, um, you give us a, a vision, a challenging vision of leadership and you, yes. you make a stark contrast between naked power yeah. and authority. Yeah, that's right. In your writing, you focus a lot on horizontal listening, and this question of listening to each other is is yeah. very, uh, you know, something we're talking a lot about in church today. Yeah, you focus a lot on solidarity. You focus yeah. a lot on recognizing the poor and the marginalized. Right, right. But at the same time, in your writing, you also uh, stress the importance of ministerial authority and leadership yeah. in the church. Right. So, and I think this is something that a lot of us have trouble kind of getting our minds around. How right. can the church be both listening, a mm. listening church, and at the same time be a hierarchical church? Right. I, I, I'm not going to tell you uh, it's easy for me to reconcile the two. It is not easy. And I know that some of my friends, uh, spiritans, especially the Dutch spiritans, they had difficulty with that aspect of the book. You know the, the the whole area of a uh, sacred uh, uh, sacred power, okay, and the uh, uh, hierarchy in the church. Um, I I was trying to reinterpret eros akaya, you know, that is sacralized. Now sacralized under the direction of the unseen God. Okay, now it doesn't explain anything. Uh, it doesn't make the work easier. But what I I uh, I note is I I followed perhaps 
closely without as much criticism as I should, um, the uh, theology of Cyprian of Carthage. And following this theology of Cyprian of Carthage, the Cyprian yeah, says clearly, it is impossible to have a church without a leader. You cannot have a church without a leader and, and a recognized leader. And uh, he used sacerdotes, priests. He used episcopos, no, bishop, as leaders. And then, in, in the in the viewpoint of Cyprian, the, the the leader is selected, selected, elected, in consultation with God. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm doing uh, uh, preparing a conference paper now. Uh, as a matter of fact, Cyprian wants did say once that God ordains in his writings, but only once, said that God, God ordains, you know, uh, the, 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 the priest or, or, or the bishop, and therefore should be respected because the person that God has chosen should be respected. But don't, ru don't run away with that. To sacralize it to the point, you, you do not acknowledge the other benchmarks of the choice, the selection, of the leader by the people. The people cast their vote, according to Cyprian. The community, people, plebs, he uses, people we call laity today, they cast their votes for the election of the bishop. The priests cast their votes and then the neighboring bishops acknowledge. So it is true that there is a signal. God is choosing this person. That's why I use sacralized. You know, and then the uh, the imposition, the ritual imposition of hands. I mean, it's inescapable for me as a liturgist to ignore the ritual imposition of hands. You know, the ritual imposition of hands and is an enabling ritual to help the person to serve the a minister in the in the community. This does not remove abuse, but us, but this does, in a sense, justify. The precedence, because it's not everyone who presides at the celebration of the Eucharist. The Eucharist that makes the church and the church that celebrates the Eucharist. That's the, I, that's the, the place where I use the whole idea of uh, hierarchy. So you had talked a bit earlier about um, initiation. Yeah, and and now, and we talked a bit about kind of the proper use of authority, and yeah. and now you're talking about liturgy and and rich and right or ritual and and the the way in which liturgy might uh, serve kind of to initiate proper authority, if I if I'm understanding correctly, right? And right. so, and I was reading a, a passage where you describe the exercise of authority as, and I'm quoting you here, the art of discerning gifts for the good of the community. And right. for the transformation of the world, so so presumably some people have been initiated mm -hmm. into that art, right? Um, so what for you does discernment mean? Discerning gifts. What does that mean in the context of the church? Mm -hmm. How do we discern, and and what criteria do we discern once we we have the, the that yeah. capacity? Yeah, uh, discernment. The way I used it, um, I was thinking more, and I'll go back to initiation, because 
to be able to be a person who is transparent. That is, uh, uh, and I, they, they use, if I use the word transparent, I don't think I use it in my book, but if I use the word transparent, it means that I am totally open. I'm a, an open book to the unseen God and spirits. And I'm open to my community. I'm not benefiting from it. And therefore, I stand in a good position after having done all the consultation, it is not a one-person show. After having done all the consultation, as a matter of fact, it may mean that we together do the discernment. We, as a community, we do the discernment. And that is what sin does. we mean. We drew a synod. And we do a discernment. What are we going to do next? How are we going to move this community forward? In, in what uh, ministries should we engage? At the end, the, the head of the community, the spokesperson of the community, having listened and acquired all the information, says, this is what we decided to do. It's not an easy way. It will take a long time. It may be a waste of time for some people, you know. And when you when you do look at the literature, the colonial literature, for example, and you hear of African palava, you know, that they talked, they spent too much time talking. This is the process communities go through to discern. And I can guarantee you uh, from some work I've done in my own village and in my clan when we are in crisis, I can guarantee you that these lengthy consultations yielded better fruit than an imposition from on top. That's what I would call discernment. Discernment does not exclude consultation with the unseen God and Jesus present among us, consultation consultation, and deliberation within the community, and finally coming and say, hey, this is our position. This is what we should do. I don't know whether that answers the question a bit. And so that certainly answers, uh, I suppose, the kind of first part of the question. And yeah. so in the context of, and you use the image of the palaver tree, this kind of, yeah. uh -huh. kind of taking time together under this under this this tree or you know yeah how then what kind of criteria are we using because i suppose especially people who are a bit uncomfortable with the idea of synodality yeah. one right. of the things that keeps on coming up is well how do we know mm -hmm. when we're listening to the holy spirit through one another right yeah as opposed to another spirit as opposed to the worldly logic <laughs> that is that is true how how do we know? How do we know? And and how do I know? I, I'm not going to stay, say, tell you that I do know, uh, except that let us pray about it. Uh, let us see what the Spirit tells us. So how do we know? And again, and ultimately, and ultimately, let us allow those we have selected in leadership positions to finally draw the conclusion from what we have said. You know, it's not 
Now, and I'm not saying that it's going to be a, a vote. Let us vote. No. But, but let us, because there was a time when, there, when some people were thinking of democratization in the church. You know, um, I still think that the spirit may work better than simply casting votes, you know, depending on our feelings, because it means we have prayed through this. And I do not uh, uh, think that it is completely self-evident to me what a decision, especially in, in weighty matters, very weighty matters. You know, I don't know. I don't really think that because I feel like that, therefore it must be that way. Or that uh, that uh, five out of out of eight think that way, it must be that way. We pray through it and we see what perhaps our selected leaders will tell us. I, I, I may disappoint. Uh, this may be disappointing, but this is this is the way I feel about it. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, somewhere else, you write about humans as being, and maybe this mm -hmm. also kind of speaks to to this idea of of how the the spirit comes through us. You you write about us as being n spirited. Yes, and yes. you talk about us as having this kind of natural tendency towards solidarity right. and peace. Right. Um, and so I suppose in some ways that's that's appealing and, and we can find some uh, scriptural justification for that. And but it's also a bit at odds at, at this uh, with another kind of important Christian view of mankind, right. maybe Augustine's more right. more pessimistic view of us as right, having right. this deeply corrupted will. Mm -hmm. So, do you think there's a there's a contradiction or a, a tension between this this optimistic view mm -hmm. of humanity as being enspirited, as having this right. natural tendency to to peace, and and Augustine's view of our corrupted will? Yeah, you 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 ask me a very difficult question because I, um, perhaps <clears throat> am I going to contradict Augustine? I'm not going to contradict Augustine. Augustine <laughs> represents a way of seeing it and uh, his own time. Uh, but uh, when I when I come from uh, the perspective of, of the religious anthropology of West Africans, you know, generally it is it is it is optimistic. That is that uh, there is an affirmation affirmation from beyond, from the world of the spirits, that the world is good. Humans are coming into the, this world good. Humans commit errors, yes, and they take responsibility for that. But from the world good, there is an, a communication. Now, don't mis misunderstand me. I'm not trying to be origin. And I, uh, Origen is one of the people I admire, uh, but but because the the the, the West African uh, anthropology and let me stay with the Igbo anthropology that before one comes into this world, one is a making, one is made by God, one is given a destiny by God. And one is accompanied by that destiny. 
one is accompanied by that destiny as a guardian spirit. You know, so in that way, you, you cannot have it more optimistic. But you can make mistakes. You can commit uh, uh, crimes, and you may pay for those those crimes. And not that uh, that people are are not responsible for their actions. Now, how would this play into uh, the Christian theology of redemption? The, the, it's not that we are corrupt before coming into the world. We have a God who gives us a positive yes, a positive yes, go into my world. But, and, and you are accompanied by my spirit. That's what that's what I call unspirited. And and this spirit spirit is an abiding spirit, you know. And then we commit errors, you know. Uh, that again, that does not undermine the Christian ritual of initiation. Initiation is belonging to this group, and then hearing the story in another way. That is in the way of the death and resurrection of Jesus giving us also the pathway, how do we live our life in the world and make the world a better place? Augustine perhaps is right in his own way that this thing is so corrupt, don't be so optimistic, it is so corrupt that you are sinning even when you do not want to do it because of the weakness of human nature. That is another response. I don't know who, who I am to even uh, challenge Augustine, but, but the story I, I tell is also defensible. Okay. So you've been talking about kind of this, this optimistic perspective from where you come from, this West African right. perspective. And that, that's right, that really yeah. see, that's really kind of, uh, you, we, can, we can see that very clearly throughout a lot of your work. Right. Uh, and how that can contribute to the Christian self-understanding. Right. The other kind of aspect of that, and I, I don't know kind of what your view on this is, the way that the church talks, the institutional church talks maybe more, is in terms mm -hmm. of inculturation right. as the adaptation of Christian teachings and practices right. to cultures right. around the world. Right. right. Um, so in your view, what role does listening play? in yeah. the work of enculturation and especially of enculturation in West Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, first of all, I take it for granted that no uh, expression of the message of Christianity from its, uh, it, from its Jewish roots through its uh, Greco-Roman uh, 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 transformations, there is no uh, expression of Christianity that is not a cultural expression. And I take that for granted. Okay, and then uh, when you talk about uh, what is enculturation then within uh, the context, the context of uh, the West African region, um, it, it is it's the welcoming of this message, not simply in terms of the West African world, but the mutual challenge posed, the mutual challenge posed by one and the other. There are issues that are new here, and you can see them differently in a way, you know, 
that you never saw them before. Uh, especially, for example, um, that you have a typically patriarchal church, but a literally patriarchal dominance. And the men are not complaining. The men are not complaining. Priests are not complaining that they have patriarchal power that undermines the role of the woman in the West African society. This should not be allowed to continue. There must be the interface between the cultural experiences that the role of the, of the woman has been undermined. I mean, not only by colonization, but by Christianity. And women theologians are all over the place saying it in, in, in Africa. You know, like Oduye, she turned 80 the other day and celebrating uh, Amber Oduye in Ghana. You know, this is celebrating her work. You know, all the things that she has been able to help do to reinvent the human, reinventing the human through recognizing the value of the woman, of serving, of mothering. Okay, no, I may talk about that later about mothering because this is uh, this is something I've learned from the conversation, a cultural conversation with feminist uh, African women uh, women theologians. I'd like to come back to that maybe uh, in, yeah. in a few minutes because I know that the the role of women in in the church and in society is an important part of your work as well. Right. Just coming back to how you characterize inculturation, would it be correct if kind of listening to you, it sounds like the way in which we should properly think about enculturation is as a dialogue. Yeah. 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 It's kind of a, it's a two-way conversation. A two-way. Yeah. Yeah. A two-way, a two-way conversation. Hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, let's, let's face it. Uh, I, I will want, I will want Jewish Christians to tell me what they recognize in the definitions of Karl Sidor as Jewish, you know? You have all the, it is true that the, the, the Apostles' Creed, the faith of the church, the faith of Nicaea, and so on, that these were crafted, you know, uh, they, they still maintain the story of Jesus, but they must, they were translated into Greek categories. That the, 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 the Jewish people that if they didn't speak Greek, we hardly recognize themselves in those uh, uh, categories. So it's a dialogue, one way or another. Come here, I'm great. All right. And so one, uh, I suppose, dialogic expression of that enculturation is the development of a specifically African theological perspective. Right. Um, so you're a prominent proponent of that perspective. So maybe could you just briefly, I know it's a, it's a big question, but could you tell mm. us in your view, what distinguishes African theology and maybe even more importantly, who is African theology for? <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, um, my colleagues um, from the Congo and others, some of them are le have left us now, but the great criticism of African theology is that, listen, it's not for the people, you know. It is uh, uh, for the uh, for the for the elite. It's an elite conversation that actually does not address the real um, the real issues. But uh, uh, what I gained, what I learned 
from uh, living and teaching in the Congo, uh, Congo, uh, Brazzaville and Kinshasa, is that the, that focus on liturgical performance helped to, because a church without the Eucharist is not a church. And it's the Eucharist that makes the church that celebrates the Eucharist. So it is in that performance that the whole theology goes down or is embraced by the entire people of God. I'm not talking about the lady, entire people of God, whether they are ministers or, or, or the people participating in the liturgy. So I, the, 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 the African theology, yeah, because you have... You have uh, all the uh, things about the Trinity said there, Christology said there, and so on. Uh, 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 Christian anthropology, therefore, we must speak to this and speak to that. I agree. It is, it's interesting. It's important. But ultimately, is it only uh, for the library and for uh, the, 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 the academic, uh, for academic conversation? How would theology reach the people since our, uh, our Christian theology from its origins was from worship to clarifying what we are saying. So I think it all goes down again to worship, to the liturgy. And we have a liturgy that celebrates. That is clear, I think. I have African theology. So uh, a specific liturgy that, that's, that's celebratory is, yes. it would be a... a, a uh, a wealth or something that's very distinctive right. about African theology. Yeah, mm. I think so. So another very practical issue, uh, again, that's not at all specific to the churches in Africa, yeah. um, but that you do talk about in that context is yeah. this culture of clericalism. Yeah. So could you tell us a bit about what you mean uh, when you write about clericalism and and how that issue maybe manifests itself in a particular way in African churches. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I talk a lot about clerical autocracy. It is it is terrible. And and I must tell you, I'm so sorry to say that instead of things getting better, they are getting worse. At least in the churches that I know in Nigeria. I'm sorry about that, but that is true. I thought that uh, with time, um, uh, people who are called to ministry, we look at ministry as diaconia, service, service. And yet, and yet it is clear that you cannot run any parish. For example, in Eastern Nigeria, you cannot do any ministry if you do not consult a number of groups, especially the women group. It's impossible to have a Catholic church in Eastern Nigeria without a Catholic women organization. You know, because they're very well organized and very they, they, they are the people that build the church. Now, so when you are talking about church, the church is the assembly of the people of God, not simply the priest. But when the priest thinks, and the culture, it's the culture, and the culture is there, 
about the powers given to the priest, the powers given to the bishops. Now, these in themselves do not help ministry. And that's why I say that, that, the, uh, that the clerical autocracy is undermining ministry and needs to be addressed and reformed. And I'm glad that at least the synod did talk about it, about clericalism. No. So uh, ministry is diaconia. And there are many levels of participation in this ministry, in the whole body of the people of God. It is not a gathering to project the image of the presider priest or, or the, of the clerus. You know, the, 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 the word that Cyprian preferred uh, to all the clerus, you know, is not, is not uh, to, to, to project the priest. It is to project the worshiping community. That's all I, that's all I say about it now. So one of the issues you highlight there has to do with the role of women. And we were talking yeah. about, you know, the, the particular, um, the particular resources of African theology. So how does African theology, or at least your iteration of it, address the role of women? What can it contribute in that area? Yeah, okay. The first thing uh, I have to say is that I have to go through a learning process myself. You know, I have to have, a, 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 I have, to have conversation with my uh, fellow theologians, uh, the, 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 the women theologians. And I have to go through the shock of living in a matrilineal society and not understanding it. You know, in the Congo, I did not understand. It was one of the most humbling experiences in my life that inheritance is through the mother's line, not through the father's line, you know. For me, it was it, it was shattering. I had to um, have a conversation with a, a, a Supreme Court justice in the Congo who clarified to me that I was wrong in thinking that a family was being oppressed because, because the nephews of somebody who died were coming to inherit instead of their children, you know. So, I, like, for me, it was it was humbling. But then in the, in the, in the area of theology, uh, one thing I think uh, that is still very relevant today is the impact people like Oduyoye, you know, uh, made in theology. Okay. And uh, the whole idea of, one, service. You know, Therese Okure raises the issue, for example, that watch the terms used in scripture. She's a, a scripture scholar. Watch the terms used in scripture. That the diaconia, that is the principal definition of the minister, is chosen from the kitchen. The term is chosen from the kitchen. That is the people who do the cooking and who do the serving. And who in, in, our, in our society do the cooking and the serving? They're the women. And then from there, Okure and Odiyoye moved into the whole idea of caring, mothering, mother, 
the, the mother takes care of the family. So that ultimately, the only way you can understand the ministry of Jesus, at least I think Odie goes as far as calling Jesus, Jesus is mother. Because Jesus cares. And therefore, the role of the women in our communities should be projected within the church to enable the church to learn about the church's self. This is what it means to be church. What it means to be church is to be the imitator of Jesus, their mother. You know, I, I never heard, it's only recently I, I reading Oduyo here that I, I did hear that she used the term, Jesus is mother. Initially, she was using the term of the service as mothering, cutting across the genders. Anybody can be, can do mothering. But telling, say, telling me that Jesus is mother is completely new. So this is the, the way that the whole idea of the of the woman, the, the woman in the church can be re-evaluated. And we have to reappropriate these cultural traditions to reinvent Christianity so as to reinvent society and make it a place better for all of us. Thank you, Father. So I think uh, throughout our conversation, something that's that's really come through to, to me is a theme of, of dialogue across cultures within the church right. and of right. listening, of yeah. listening to each other across cultures uh, within the church. So perhaps as a final broad question, stepping back, right. what in your view does the universal church have to learn from the yeah. church in Africa? What can it listen for when... Yeah. It's in dialogue with the church in Africa. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, what I think, um, and I pray that the world church uh, will try to uh, to learn and to and to continue to teach Africa is one to take a step back from clericalism. To please take a step away from clericalism. I do not think that clericalism is only in Africa, to learn from the cultural treasures of conversation, conversation at all levels, not to be afraid to listen and to hear even what you think you do not like to hear. So that is what I think the Universal Church can take from the cultural traditions of Africa that the African Church must learn as well and to move away from the mistakes of our church leaders, especially the clericalized church leadership. Move away from that. So I'm sorry, what they, what they can learn, and I, I, I'm just saying what they should avoid, you know, and then that mutually interrogate one another and not be, not be afraid to be open to the spirit of Jesus that is there speaking to us, we need to drop the ears to the ground and we hear it. That's all I think we can do. Father Zuku, I, I've learned very much in our conversation. Thank you for sitting underneath the palaver tree with me uh, and having this dialogue. Uh, it's been fantastic. Thank you for joining us for Autumnus. 
a production of the Listening Practices in Global Catholicism Project. Please subscribe so that you can join us for other episodes, available wherever you get your podcasts.